This won't come as a surprise to most of you, but I spent most of my childhood in the 80s, the 1980s, a little bit in the 70s, most in the 80s, a little in the 90s. I know, for some of you that means I'm very young, but there are some that that means I'm very old. I know, it's hard to tell. And there were a few really terrifying aspects to growing up um, in that decade. Some remember the first diagnosed case of AIDS in the United States happened in 1981, and uh, there was a lot of fear there. Razor blades and apples and other things. Lots of things I think of that were a bit uh, uh, terrifying, but one that stands out probably more than any other for me, uh, being a child of that decade, uh, is the increased emphasis and renewed emphasis on spiritual warfare and the fear of the demonic and of demons that happened in that decade. I remember watching a video series, I actually looked it up again this week, and man, did it bring back memories, um, that as a young person I watched in the 80s, it was called Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. <laughs> Anybody remember that thing? You can still find it on YouTube for those who are too young to remember it. I think we watched it, I think it was in junior high when I saw it the first time. I can't remember if it was youth group or Sunday school, but I watched it. And the core message of that series was that Satan and demons and the demonic powers in the world were using music to influence, to transform, and even to possess and to control young people. And I remember being terrified by that video series at 12 years old. Uh, I remember a friend of mine played one of the songs that was being talked about in that video series when I was over his house one day. And I, I, I mean, I, I literally wanted to run out of the house because I was afraid that just by listening to that song I was going to become possessed by a demon and lose control of myself. There were stories at the time of youth groups that performed exorcisms in which kids were thrown across the room. I don't know if some of you heard some of those stories. I don't know if any of them were true, but they were everywhere. Quite a number of my Christian friends read uh, a book called This Present Darkness. came out in the late 80s. Um, and uh, believe me, that book didn't help anything. After reading it, I remember feeling like there was a demon around every corner and every temptation I had was to be associated with some demonic presence holding on to me. And at the center of all that fear was music. Stuff that at the time was called New Age, punk, heavy metal, death metal eventually, all that. Actually, this is somewhat of an embarrassing story, but you know, I remember laying in bed one night listening to a Christian CD. I was 13, 14 maybe, and the CD started to skip. And uh, I mean, really loud, scary skipping. <laughs> and it was a Christian CD, and I'm sure it was just scratched, but it had never done that before, and I'd listened to it a lot. And I remember laying in bed terrified, like I couldn't move, just shaking, thinking that certainly the demonic forces were causing this sound to come out of my system, and there was something going to happen. It was a scary time for me. Maybe some of you remember the fervor uh, of part of that decade. Maybe it's still there, I don't know. You guys still raised with that kind of fear? No? no? I don't know. Why do I bring all that up? Well, besides just revealing that I'm somewhat of a scaredy cat, our passage from 1 Peter today deals with this issue of spiritual forces of evil and Jesus' confrontation with them. And uh, as I was studying and reading over the course of the week, it reminded me of being a child, and I remembered some of my fears. And it brought up these questions. How fearful should we be of demons and the demonic? 
Can they possess us unawares? Are they behind all of our temptations? How do they get at us? How much power do they have? What can we do to protect ourselves? Or is all this just myth? And I do believe Peter has some words to say to us today with respect to those questions. So we'll begin today. Some of you are going to be happy to hear this. Maybe some of you will be sad. I'm a little bit sad. We're going to be beginning our final three-part mini-series through the book of 1 Peter. And we've been sitting at Peter's feet as an apostle of Jesus and as one who has been inspired by the Holy Spirit since the end of June. Can you believe it's been that long? first sermon in the series was the last weekend of June. And now in the next three weeks, our journey through 1 Peter is going to find uh, completion. And I've entitled this concluding mini-series in 1 Peter, probably the most depressing of all the titles in the whole series, Embracing Sacrifice. Embracing Sacrifice. And we'll be exploring 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 14. And to this point in our walk through 1 Peter, and all I'm doing here is just going through the titles of the sermons since June, or the series anyway. To this point in our walk through 1 Peter, Peter has invited us to embrace exile, to embrace the reality that we are living as resident aliens in a country not our own. He's encouraged us to embrace election, the fact that we have been chosen not for ourselves but for the sake of the world. He's invited us to embrace what I called kenosis or self-emptying, the pouring out of ourselves for the sake of the world. He's invited us to embrace priesthood, to be people who mediate the presence of God to a world that's rejecting Him and who bring that world before God as we worship. And He's called us to embrace submission, to be a people who submit ourselves to every authority instituted among humans. It's been a lot, hasn't it? I mean, at times during this series, maybe you can say this with me, I felt somewhat un- unqualified, incapable of living in the way that Peter has been asking his people to live. How do we live as exiles in the world? What does it even mean to live as though this place is not our permanent residence, that we are not really citizens of this place, whether it be America or any other place on earth? How do we accept that the reason that God has elected the church and left us here is not for us, not to better our lives, not to somehow give us all of our happiness, but He's left us here as temporary exiles that we might pour ourselves out for all people, that we might serve as priests, bringing the world before God and mediating His presence to them, and that God might transform both ourselves and our world through our willingness to submit ourselves to every human authority on earth. It's not typically what we think of, I don't think, when we think the gospel, but there it is for Peter. How are we to do all that? Is it even possible to live in that way consistently? No, it's not. I mean, at least not naturally, right? I mean, there are just too many things that frighten us. Too much fear and uncertainty in this world for us to live proactively every moment as Peter has called us to live. There's too much evil. There's too much entrenched and systemic corruption. And it's in each of us. It's in the people that we meet. It's in towns and cities and states and nations. There's just so much of it. How are we going to remain faithful consistently? And there's just too much personal suffering that we have to endure in this world, both our own suffering and those that of other people, those that we love, our friends and some even strangers. How can we remain hopeful? How can we remain joyful? How can we remain steadfast? 
Fear is tenacious, isn't it? I mean, it just, it just eats at us. Evil is everywhere. And suffering can be crippling. Literally and figuratively. We don't even know what a life free from these things would look like. Or do we? According to Peter, there was one who walked this road with perfect integrity. One who shows us what it looks like to embrace all of these things. Exile, election, self-emptying, priesthood, and submission. Jesus. Jesus walked this road ahead of us. And according to Peter, the secret for Jesus and the mystery that has been revealed to us through Him is that this road can only be walked consistently if we are willing to embrace sacrifice. If we are willing to embrace death. Jesus has shown us that the secret to true contentment, the key to holiness, the holy grail of humanity's elusive pursuit of the image of God, will remain inaccessible and unattainable so long as we cling to our lives, so long as we cling to our security, so long as we cling to our happiness. Life and thriving and happiness in this world, Jesus shows us, must be lived with an open hand. Not one that grasps and tries to hold on. One that's willing to receive, but also willing to let go. And we must embrace the reality that our road must end in this world as Jesus' road ended. With our deaths. That's not an encouraging place to start, I know. But according to Peter, we can embrace death. We can embrace Jesus' sacrifice for us and the inevitability of our own deaths, our own sacrifices as well. Because of three pivotal obstacles to faithfulness which Jesus has overcome. There are three of them and they're the three parts of our series. Evil, that's this week. Self-centeredness, that's next week. And suffering, that'll be our final one. Today we'll listen to Peter as he explains to us that we can embrace sacrifice, we can embrace death, because in Jesus, evil is overcome. And that's the title of this first part of our mini-series, Evil is Overcome. Well, if you have access to a Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter if you're not already there. We're in chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 13, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Now I'm going to stop there for now because the next verse is the verse that gets 
gets interesting. And the reason I mentioned demons at the beginning. But we want to deal with this first section first to lay the foundation Peter is laying. And as we've observed several times through the course of this series for those who have been here, Peter was writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor who were facing persecution. We don't know the full extent of the persecution based on the things that they endured in the first century. It could have been very severe, like the persecution that happened under Nero. It could have been something more local and minor. We're not sure. But they were facing persecution at the hands of their neighbors and their governors nonetheless. And to these persecuted believers, Peter wrote the words, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Easier said than done, isn't it? I'm sort of a a warrior. Anybody realize that yet? Maybe I keep it to myself. I worry about things. And oftentimes when I'm honest about that, like I am today, inevitably some pious Christian sister or brother will pull me aside with all great intention in their heart and say, Well, Jesus said, don't worry. You're not allowed to worry. That helps. (laughs) Like I can just turn it off. You know, like it's a switch. Like I go out there trying to worry. Like that's my goal. You know? Fear is similar, isn't it? I mean, to be commanded not to fear, that's sort of like being commanded not to breathe. I mean, good luck with that. We'll see how long you last. But what I appreciate about Peter, and I appreciate this about Jesus too, is they don't simply give these commands as these blanket rules that you have to follow. Peter explains why they don't need to fear. As Jesus, really, if we read him in context, explains what we don't need to worry about. They didn't need to fear, and this is maybe not going to make sense at first, I hope it will by the end. They don't need to fear because Jesus died and revealed that death is the way to God. I mean, did you catch that in the verses that I read? I mean, it's nestled in there, right? And I don't want to dismiss the other things Peter's saying. I mean, Peter has retraced a theme in those verses that he's gone back to time and time again. Matter of fact, it recurs in First Peter so much. I, I almost think that Peter's protesting too much. There must have been something he was trying to check. And over and over again, Peter says, Now, don't get me wrong, not all suffering is good. If you suffer because you did something wrong, that's not godly. If you suffer because you were engaged in some sort of evil and got caught, that's not godly. That's not going to help you out. Peter, for some reason, has to say that over and over again. And he said it in these verses too. So Peter is not just exalting suffering for suffering's sake, which is sort of Buddhism, right? Any suffering will do. That's not Peter's point. For Peter, if you suffer because you broke the law, or if you suffer because you were engaged in criminal activity and got caught, or if you suffer because you did something you shouldn't do and it's gotten you into a condition you didn't ever want to be in, or if perhaps you harm yourself through some sort of self-inflicted pain, he's not saying that that kind of suffering is beneficial. Not all suffering helps. It's suffering for doing good that he's talking about. Suffering for following Jesus. Suffering for standing for the right things. And he's returned to that theme in these verses. Matter of fact, most of the verses I read highlighted that. But there was that verse in verse 18. The key. The foundation for the overcoming of fear. Did you hear it? For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 
They killed Jesus, but they could not keep him dead. Yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, Jesus was persecuted. Yes, Jesus endured seasons of poverty and aloneness. And yes, Jesus was even sentenced to death. And yes, Jesus died. They killed Him. The evil powers in this world, they weren't restrained when it came to Jesus. He didn't stop them from doing all they could to Him. In fact, they did all they could to Him. And they even exercised their ultimate power. That scepter they have that wields ultimate fear. They took His life. Or at least they tried. And that's the mystery that's revealed to us in Jesus. They couldn't take His life. They couldn't rob Him of His future. They couldn't damage Him beyond repair. Why not? Because His life, His future, His person, those things were not theirs. They could do nothing of permanence because all things humans do are temporary. Only God can make permanent things. In embracing sacrifice, in embracing death, Jesus robbed evil of its fundamental power over us. Jesus didn't defeat evil to bring us to God. He didn't go after it with a sword or with some sort of spiritual weapon of power and take evil on. You know, I love that member child of the 80s, Carmen. I might as well say I'm part of the Carmen generation, right? Because he was big then. And I love that, that, that Carmen song where, well, it's more of a play than anything else. Anybody listen to Carmen? You know what I'm talking about? He, he, where Jesus and Satan are in a boxing match and they're fighting and that's how the cross is depicted. And uh, Satan beats him, you know, and then he, then he, he rises from the dead and defeats It's a great little scene. I used to do skits with the kids when I was a youth pastor where we acted that out because, you know, self-centeredly, I was a youth pastor and do what I wanted. And so I encouraged him to do that. But that's not how Jesus defeated evil. He didn't put on boxing gloves or wield a sword or use some kind of spiritual weapon. Jesus died to bring us to God. He died. And in doing that, He revealed that the ultimate power of sin and of evil powers are dying and our deaths have been transformed into doorways to eternal life. The world would scare us with the threat of suffering, with the threat of pain, with the threat of death and dying. But Jesus has reinterpreted them by telling us that those very things are the doorways to eternal life. According to a recent book by Dr. Jacob Tettelbaum called Real Cause, Real Cure, he's revealed some interesting things about stress. Stress we typically think of as something we want to avoid, something that's not good for us, something that we should uh, not engage ourselves with. But in truth, stress can be very positive, very healthy, very helpful to our well-being. Now, the key, of course, is that stress has to be temporary. Stress that has no end, that's going to go on and on forever, that we can't see a termination point of, that kind of stress does a lot of damage to us. And it's that kind of stress that has health consequences and all other kinds of things. But temporary stress, stress that lasts for a short period of time that we can see the other end of. Public speaking is one of the ones that's used. I guess that's a great fear for most people. Those things can actually sharpen our minds, increase our fortitude, improve our productivity. In some ways, Peter has revealed 
that through the cross and through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus has revealed all persecution, all suffering to be temporary. Even those things that feel as though they have damaged us beyond repair. Even those hurts and scars that have done such work on us that we can't imagine who we would even be without them. They've changed us so fundamentally that we don't think we could ever be without them or their effects. None of those things will yield permanent power over us because Jesus died in the body and was raised to new life in the Spirit. If we can embrace sacrifice, then the power of evil which has been overcome in Jesus will begin to lose its power over us as well. Are we afraid to suffer? Are we afraid to be persecuted? Are we afraid to die? These are the powers that evil forces will use to turn us from God. Look at 1 Peter as we continue reading. Look back at 1 Peter as I continue reading in verse 19. This gets into some interesting stuff. I'm actually going to begin reading at the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Did you catch all that? In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Did you catch that in there? He went to proclaim to the imprisoned spirits who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What's that all about? Most Christian scholarship going at least back to the 1500s, probably a lot further than that, have almost unanimously agreed that this is the perhaps the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament to understand. Martin Luther confessed to having no idea what it meant when he read it. In fact, one of the more debatable phrases in the Apostles' Creed, some of you maybe your, your ears perked up when you've heard it recited or recited it yourself, Jesus descended into hell. You remember that phrase in the Creed? It seems very dependent on this actual passage, where it comes from. But rather than get into all the opinions that have been offered, and believe me, I've read a lot of them this week, and I've been exposed to a lot of them even before that. If you're interested in all the different options, I'd be happy to talk with you on another venue. I'm not going to do that today. Instead, I'm going to put forward what I take to be the most likely reading of what Peter is trying to say. And uh, some of you may have heard what I'm about to say before. Some of you may think I'm a pagan after this. I really don't know. <clears throat> but if you want to discuss the other options, I'm aware of them. We can talk about them later. Maybe at our Thanksgiving feast. I don't know. Jewish mythology had long been fascinated with the events that led up to the flood that's described in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. In fact, a popular Jewish fictional text, now called the books of 1st and 2nd Enoch, seemed to have been quite popular and widely circulated during the New Testament era. They were sort of Jewish um, science fiction and fantasy writing for the first century. It seems pretty clear that Jewish people took them all to be fictional, but they were very, very popular and widely distributed. And actually, language from First and Second Enoch shows up in the New Testament. Jesus calls heaven paradise. That comes from Enoch, not from the, from the Bible. 
Um, Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven. That comes from Enoch, not from anywhere in Scripture. Um, so so it's, a, it's influenced the language. It's a popular set of books. And it depicts, uh, some of you remember, Enoch uh, is one listed early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, and he, the language used of him makes it sound like he never died. Like he was just taken directly up into heaven. And uh, the Jewish people use that. So the books of Enoch are written from the perspective of this man who was taken up into heaven. And it describes his ascent to heaven and all the things he saw while he was there and the stories that he heard and so on. So you can understand why people liked reading it in those days. As a matter of fact, some of you might go and try and read it um, after this. I don't know. But in the books of Enoch, the events that precipitated the great flood in Genesis were these. This is the way Enoch describes them. Angels came down and they seduced human females. And they produced a race of giants through them called the Nephilim. And those giants, the Nephilim, this is in Genesis 6, the language, not this interpretation, but the language is there. The Nephilim then produced spirits that were associated by Jewish mysticism with demons. And those spirits went out into the world and they so corrupted the earth at that time before the flood that God decided He had to wipe out all life except for one family and a, and a, a remnant of animals. And the spirits and the offending angels that sort of started the whole thing, according to Enoch, were imprisoned by God to be held for judgment at the end of time. And it seems that Peter is referencing that way of talking about the flood here in 1 Peter. It seems most natural to assume that Peter was using this cultural way of speaking of the flood and evil spirits to declare Jesus' triumph over all forces of evil through the cross and through His resurrection, whether they were spiritual or material. In the earliest days of humanity on earth, humans and forces of evil conspired, at least Genesis tells us this, to corrupt the entire face of creation. And God responded by sending a flood to destroy all life. And God used water as the tool through which He destroyed life. Peter seems to have suggested that something ironic has happened in Jesus. That likewise, by the time Jesus came in the flesh, humans had conspired with spiritual forces of evil. We see that in the demonic uh, activity during Jesus' ministry. Humans and demonic forces had once again colluded to corrupt all of creation. And once again, in Jesus, God had sent judgment on the earth. But this time, different. Instead of destroying all life in a flood of water, God has offered eternal life to all through water. Baptism. Noah had been rescued from the waters of destruction. He didn't have to go through the waters. He was protected on an ark. And that sounds great. I mean, we all would have wanted to have been Noah, right? Not the others who were drowned in those days. But all God accomplished in doing was sort of shrinking evil to one family. We're told later that Noah and his family were as evil at their core as the others who had been saved. And shortly after coming out of the ark, Noah gets drunk and unseemly things happen in his family. And evil continues to do its little march. So Noah was spared the waters of destruction, but evil remained on earth. God did something new in Jesus. Jesus was not spared the waters of destruction. He was destroyed by the forces of evil and chaos in this world. Jesus passed through the waters. And by doing that, He defeated evil fundamentally. God raised Him to new life. 
And so for Peter, Jesus went and pronounced the victory of God to the spiritual forces of evil, which had conspired with humans long ago to corrupt creation, and had continued, and probably to this day continued, to collude with humans to corrupt God's world and His intentions. But what Peter seems to insist is that we no longer need to fear these forces. Because in the words of Peter, and this is back to 1 Peter, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. The waters of chaos and destruction that would destroy us now constitute the road of salvation itself because of Jesus. And our own baptisms represent our willingness to follow Jesus through the waters, to embrace suffering and even death at the hands of the powers of chaos in this world. Because we know that as Jesus was delivered out of the waters through His resurrection from the dead, so we too will be delivered. The power of this world and the power of death that it wields is fear. Your fear is the power that enslaves us. My fear. But we need not fear because in Jesus we've seen the worst that could happen and what will result. I remember an old Seinfeld episode, again, you know when I grew up. And uh, in that episode, one of the characters, George Costanza, swallowed a fly. Anybody remember the scene? And he starts shaking his hands going, I swallowed a fly, I found a fly, I swallowed a fly! And he looks at Jerry and he goes, What could happen? That's it, isn't it? It's the fear of the unknown that gets us. When we watch the world spiraling out of control, when we're given a diagnosis we don't understand or we wouldn't have ever wanted, when we watch our families spiraling, our children making decisions we won't want them to make, when we watch our government changing in a way we're not comfortable with, when we watch laws be enacted that give us fear, whatever in the world we see happening, we don't know what's on the other side of it. It's petrifying. What's going to happen? Last year when our family was moving out here to accept this call to ministry, that was a pretty stressful time for us. And we couldn't sell our house, and we knew that even if we did sell it, we were going to take an enormous financial hit in order to do so. We were leaving a meaningful and somewhat idyllic ministry context for us as a family, moving into the unknown of a larger, more demanding, and more stretching context. And I was full of fear. What if we lose everything when we try to sell our house? What if we have to declare bankruptcy because we can't pay our bills? What if we get out to New Hampshire? Remember when I first accepted this call to ministry, I didn't know what the package was. I said yes and I didn't know what they were going to pay me. So I, was I, I didn't know what was going to happen. What if we get out to New Hampshire, the ministry doesn't work out? What if they don't pay me enough to live? Where will we live? What's going to happen? Petrifying. And I remember saying something like that to my mom and she responded to me with something I'll never forget. She said, what's the worst that could happen? You'll declare bankruptcy, you'll move back home for a little bit, you'll start over. It's not the end of the world. And I, I remember exhaling after she said that. Like, You see, the fear of the worst that could happen was keeping me from really seeing the worst that could happen. Jesus shows us the worst that could happen in this world. He shows us what it looks like and look how it ended for Him. He suffered. Yes, He suffered. That's part of the worst that could happen. He was homeless at the end. Yes, part of the worst that could happen. 
He was not wealthy. No. Part of the worst that could happen. He never married. No. Single to the day he died. For some, that's part of the worst that could happen. He had no children. No, for others, that's part of the worst that could happen. People gossiped about him incessantly. Can you imagine if there was Facebook in Jesus' day? (laughs) They gossiped about him incessantly. Yes, for some, that's the worst that could happen, right? He was tortured horribly for those of us who fear physical pain. That's part of the worst that could happen. And he died. Certainly the worst that could happen. Not in his sleep, somewhere at night. Not of a heart attack when he didn't know what was happening. Through torture and death. The worst that could happen. But what happened? God raised him from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's preparing a place for us where there will be no more crying or mourning or despair. Even after the worst that could possibly happen, God made all things new. Should we fear spiritual forces of evil? Was I right to lay in bed shaking at Satan's power? Was Hell's Bells documentary right that demons were using music to possess kids? In a way, I suppose that could be true. I mean, we should fear anything that would keep us tied to this world and, our value, and its values and keep us from following Jesus with all of our hearts. We should fear those things. Music can do that. Entertainment can do that. Friends can do that. And I suppose that any of those things that lure us to celebrate and to embrace and to embody ethics and behaviors that are contrary to the ways of Jesus, they're rightly called demonic, rightly called evil. But these things have no more power over us than we grant them. Why not? Because Jesus has shown us a life lived in defiance of their power. And Jesus unmasked them for what they are. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. They can cause a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But the powers of this world are temporary. When we embrace sacrifice, when we embrace embrace death and dying as parts of the road we must walk to inherit eternal life, then those who would use those things to petrify us into submission, they lose their teeth. And they lose their claws. The world can do its worst. What's the worst that could happen? God will have to raise us from the dead. Our fate lies with God. Should we work to make this world better and more godly? Of course we should do that. Christians follow Jesus. We live the way He did. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We lift up the brokenhearted. We care for widows and orphans in their distress. And we work to keep ourselves with God unstained by the world. Those are transformative values that affect those who encounter them. But in the end, those who truly understand the gospel hold this world and all of it that it offers with an open hand. We don't lay in bed shaking in fear because of demons and evil powers. We respect their influence and the limited power they have in this world, but we don't fear them. Jesus has already proclaimed their defeat, and they know it. And we've seen what happens when they do their worst. Resurrection from the dead happens. A new body raised in the Spirit happens. Ascension to the throne room of God happens. Eternal life happens. We need not fear these powers. They've been overcome in Jesus. We can embrace sacrifice. We can embrace death. We can embrace the worst that can happen today and still move forward with hope because evil has been overcome in Jesus. 
and all principalities and powers have been placed in subordination to Him. Death is no mystery to us. It's no undiscovered country. It's no shield that we don't know what's on the other side of it. Jesus has shown us what's on the other side of death. And for those of us who have been baptized into Jesus, who follow Him with our whole selves, we have nothing to fear. This too, and I don't know what it is in your life, I know what these things have been and are in mine, but whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're dealing with, this too, whatever it is, will pass. And the trials of our short decades on this earth will be less than a drop in the bucket of the eternity God has prepared for those who love Him. We as a community of faith will walk this road together. You are not alone, and neither am I, by God's grace. We'll bear each other's burdens. We'll celebrate together whenever we can. We'll pray together as often as we are able. And we'll mourn together whenever we must. But we need not fear the circumstances of our lives because when the worst happens, it will be brief, it will be temporary, and it will result in our resurrection from the dead and a future with the God of all creation that will know no end. We can embrace the worst and face the difficulty and questioning of this world with confidence and with hope because evil is overcome in Jesus. May it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.